0: And we are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go, tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Hasn't not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred of the men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So... Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that we can hear this, your word, here this morning. Spirit, give us your illuminating light that we would understand this, the word of God, for apart from you, we can understand nothing. Father, thank you that in your great love, you sent Jesus, that troubler of Israel. To live with us, die for us, rise again. Would we know his welcome and his challenge here this morning. Do a good work as we access this ancient story for your glory, for our good, for the good of our neighbors, and for the good of the world. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. As our pandemic begins to clear bit by bit by bit, We are entering, I feel, a brave new world for Christianity and for our world more generally. For Christianity. Some of you know this story. Years and years ago now, Emily and I chose to move from where we were pastoring, Happy and Healthy Church, back into this area to plant Liberty Church Collingswood. And one of the intriguing main draws for me and for Emily was the fact that this and surrounding boroughs was a highly secular post-Christian area. So different from where we were. We were in the western part of Texas, Lubbock, Texas. A couple of you I know have been there. It's very Bible-belty there. And in that part of the country, including in, in that town... For you to be a member at a local church, to be a part of a church, meant that you gained social capital. So for a neighborhood group or a PTA or if you wanted to run for public office of one kind or another, it was a boon and a benefit for you to be able to tell people, oh yes, I am a member at First Presbyterian Church of Lubbock or Second Baptist or whatever it is. And the cultural context was such that if you weren't able to tell people, I'm at this church or that church, people might wonder a little bit. Hmm, why aren't you a part of any church? That seems maybe a little bit weird. Is there something off or suspect about you? And now here, it's pretty much the exact opposite, where you might stand to lose some social capital If you say, I am a member at this church, people might wonder, is there something off about you? What kind of church is it? A total flip of cultural context. And one context is not better or worse than another, but Emily and I felt this context better fits us here. And so for years, it was refreshing to be able to be in a context like this. And it still is, but it feels a little more daunting to me year by year, because at least in my opinion, secularities, both of the right and of the left, are accelerating. They're getting more aggressive and more firm. There are new orthodoxies, both on the left and on the right, and I'm being increasingly convinced that an orthodox expression of Christianity, uh, robust, Bible-rooted, historic Christian faith, it just doesn't fit. It doesn't fit either the secularity of the right or the secularity of the left. It's its own thing. And we'll see what happens over the next few months, but it's possible that here at Liberty Collingswood, we may have lost a couple of people, both to the secular right and to the secular left. Over pandemic, I've occasionally filled fielded comments like, hey, Liberty Church Collingswood is just way too conservative for me. I've also fielded comments, hey, Liberty Church Collingswood has sold itself out to the progressive left, and one week, I got both of those comments in the same week, and I wanted to say, hey, down Haddon Avenue here in Collingswood, there's an escape room. Do you mind if I put you in here with a couple other people that that have told me the exact opposite thing, and I'll just be watching behind the mirror. It's going to be a lot of fun. But at a larger level, too, when our elders and deacons met our consistory two Thursdays ago, I put it this way. I feel like we are exiting a period where it is easy to be a low-commitment Christian. We are exiting a period where it's easy to be a low-commitment Christian, where there's going to be pressure to break in one direction or another. You might say, well, I'm low-commitment Christian, I don't necessarily use those terms, Jesus is part of my life, not too big, it's going to be easier for you to break in one direction or the other, to say, I need to double down and get more serious about Jesus, or say, you know what, all of this Jesus, all of this Christianity stuff just isn't for me, and I'm going to probably travel to one of those secularities or the various kinds. Now I understand. If you're in the room and you're not a follower of Jesus or you're thinking maybe not so sure or if you're watching online and are in the same boat, you might think, well, I guess it's church, but this feels very churchy. This is a parochial concern right here that doesn't really affect me. I would suggest that there are larger forces of which this is a part. Where isn't it true at a more general level, and we've been talking about this more and more at Liberty Collingswood, our world, our nation, our communities are becoming increasingly tribal and increasingly fragmented in so many different ways. I was going back through old notes and quotes this week, and I came across one that put it this way from the Atlantic Magazine years ago, talking about social media. Within a circle of friends or like-minded acquaintances, social media certainly fosters connection. But the further one zooms out to whole societies or the course of global affairs, the more this connection is marred by tribalism and mistrust. It said that tribalism and mistrust is on the increase in our world, and that article was written in October of 2016, just a month before the 2016 elections, And I chuckled when I saw the date stamp on that and said, well, we've gotten so much better since then, and we don't have to worry about these things anymore. No, it's gone in completely the opposite direction. When I was in college, a couple years ago now, in college for a lot of people, including, I guess, for me, is a time where you sit around with a diverse group of people that you wouldn't have met outside of going to university together, and you have all of these big, long conversations about life, the universe, and everything. They're great, rich debate, sometimes heated, sometimes not, but you appreciate the discourse. And I remember thinking and saying, in more than one group, hey, whether we identify this way or this way, we can at least agree that even if we have different methods about how we should go about it, We all basically want the same things for our nation and for our world. So whether you believe in building up the welfare state or increasing trust in the free market economy, whether you're a hawk or a dove when it comes to foreign policy, let's agree that we are on the same page about the human flourishing of peace both within our nation and in the international community that we're striving for. Today, however, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. And at a deeper level, based on personal conversations I have, questions I field, or from what I read and listen to and see, I wonder, can we even agree as a nation, as cultures, what reality is at all? Think about it. We have two major political parties, one of which the majority thinks that the election was totally different this past fall than the other party says. And the framing of voting rights laws in the South, if you listen to news outlets, and you can have your own opinions about this, I'm not trying to tell you how to vote, but the framing of what's going on with these voting laws, completely different on one side of the aisle or on the other side of the aisle. No wonder, and I continue to read and see about this, and I've mentioned it before, Generation Z millennials, the most frustrated, the most angsty, the most isolated, the most lonely, the most cynical group on record, including for these factors. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not advocating that the church re-engage the culture wars or fight fire with fire. However, the church has an opportunity in today's day and age to ask questions and say, what is reality? What is reality? And where might we find ourselves aligned? Which is something that goes back and forth in our passage at the end between Elijah, the prophet of God, and Ahab, the king of Israel. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. You're the troubler. No, you're the troubler. No, you're the troubler. No, No, you are. What is reality? Where are they aligned? And we also have this other character in this story, Obadiah. So two parts from here. Let's talk about where they, where we might align, thinking first about King Ahab, and then we'll talk about Obadiah and Elijah. So we're getting closer to the main event here in this cycle of stories in 1 Kings about Elijah. It's like a Shakespearean play. Now, some of you know that Shakespearean plays, if they are by Shakespeare, in fact, who knows? Just kidding, that's a sidebar usually five acts, right? And the climax occurs not in the fifth act, but in the third one. And then you have for acts four and five, the ramifications, the aftermath, the denouement, or if you have a Delco accent, the denouement. What happens afterwards, right? And so here it is with Elijah that we are in Act 3, just at the beginning of Act 3, when we're going to get to the main event. Elijah versus Ahab, Elijah's God versus Ahab's God, Yahweh, the one true God, against Baal. And the whole story has been building up to this moment. At the beginning of chapter 17, a chapter before, the very first thing when we're introduced to Elijah, this conflict is coming. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Galilee in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Yahweh, the one true God, against Baal, the storm God, there is a drought. Who is the real God? But then that main conflict is delayed where Elijah is sent way far away to a brook to stay there for a while, way far away outside of Israel. Now you're going to be in Zarephath and Sidon. You're going to be with this widow for a long time, three years, but now it's time. The main event is getting closer. In our text, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah In the third year, after three years, go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. By the time we get to the end of our passage, Eric, I love the phrase that he used a couple weeks ago, the royal rumble is upon us. Now therefore, verse 19, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Who is God? And you could say on one hand that our particular story here is a setup to a meetup. Elijah is told, okay, now is the time to go find Ahab. So there's dialogue between Elijah and this other character, Obadiah. Okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to meet Ahab now, which happens at the end of the story. But if it's true that at one level this is a setup to a meetup, there's also a lineup question. How are these characters aligning? Elijah, it's clear, aligns with Yahweh, our God, the one true God. Ahab does not, a worshiper of Baal. But then intriguingly, you have this other character, Obadiah, and there are other Obadiahs in the Bible. This is the only time where we meet this Obadiah who's in between, kind of playing both sides with Ahab, but then with Elijah as well. You get that wordplay in verses 7 and 8. As Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him, and Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my Lord Elijah? Sign of respect. But Elijah answered him, It is I. Go and tell your Lord, Ahab, behold, Elijah is here. So alignment questions are baked into this story, and I think they're good questions for us to ask as well. Where might you be aligned? And that seems to me to be such a pressing issue in this cultural moment. Where are you aligned? Are you aligned this way? Are you aligned that way? And realistically, I think, we're starting to feel some alignment fatigue as well. Everybody is watching. Nothing is neutral. And things that, a few years ago, We're just things now have all of these virtue signaling ramifications. So what you buy, what you eat, what you wear, where you shop, what you watch, what you listen to, and so on, have all of these alignment implications they didn't used to. And it's Mother's Day, I realize, but permit me to say a Father's Day or Grandpa Jim sort of thing here. When I signed up for social media all those years ago, back in the mid-2000s, I had no idea what it was going to become. And it's not just myself that's saying this, and this is why I personally struggle to be on Facebook and social media, because everybody's watching. What are we posting? What are we not posting? What are we liking? What are we not liking? What are we tweeting? What are we not tweeting? What are we sharing? What are we not sharing? What are we retweeting and not retweeting? What are we following? What are we not following? Everybody's watching! And then signs, not just for candidates, but for ideologies now. And Collingswood is a place where signs are everywhere in front of people's houses and business is good. With all of these signs, take the killing of George Floyd last year, all these Black Lives Matter signs, and then all these Blue Lives Matter signs, and All Lives Matter signs. And you might think, oh! That family has a Black Lives Matter sign. Interesting. Oh, that family over here, that person has an All Lives Matter sign. This person doesn't have a sign at all in his or her yard. Does this person care about anything at all? Why don't they care? Or more recently in Zoom, and it's okay if you do this again, not judging, but if it's your name and then the the, the pronoun indicators, his, her, him, there, I I've had the thought like, As of now, I don't have those pronoun indicators, but is that going to start to be judged by other people? I don't, in my opinion, I'm not making a statement that way, but will it be interpreted as one? All of these virtue signaling fatigues, alignments, that I think is wearing us down. And here's a story from the earlier days of Liberty Collingswood. Wouldn't have said it a few years ago, but I think it's long enough in the past that we can break the seal on it. So, here we go. A little bit of town gossip. Years ago, and I'm told that there was this Collingswood Mommy group, and I wasn't myself on this particular Collingswood Mommy group, so I'm getting this secondhand. But going on in this Facebook group, there was this thing where there was a lot of husband-hating and advocacy for divorce and practice of open marriages, including with other people on this Collingswood Mommy group. And there was a woman that came and visited church and said, Hey, I'm not really sure where I am with any of this Christianity stuff but I kind of like my husband, and is this a safe place for me to be? And we said, sure. And let it be said, too, that if you don't like your husband, this is also a safe place for you to be. But that was an example years ago, and I think it's only accelerated till now where there is alignment fatigue that's being felt. And what if churches could be places that are safe havens And you feel like you don't have to feel that pressure all the time anymore. And going back to Ahab here, let's let Ahab stand in for the secularities of our day. I realize that it's not a perfect one-to-one correspondence here. Ahab, king of Israel, worshiper of Baal. If you meet somebody after church on Haddon Avenue that says, Hey, I'm Bob, king of Israel, worshiper of Baal. You have permission to run away from old Bob. But if Ahab was standing outside the people of God in this story here as well standing outside the church or secularities both on the left and on the right and here's the irony Ahab thinks that he's found but he's actually lost for all of the power and resources that Ahab has he's losing things He's losing resources. It's a drought, and he's powerless against it. In verse 5, he says, Obadiah, okay, uh, you go this way, I'll go this way. I hope we find some water, and I hope we find some grass. And for all of the resources of the monarchy, it's been three years, and he can't find Elijah. That recognition is in verse 10 of our story. Obadiah says, as the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord is not sent to seek you. And when they would say he's not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they have not found you. Elijah cannot be found. And I would want to say and ask to my secular friends, are you so sure that you're not lost? Are you so sure that you're not lost? I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that in this cultural moment, the church has the opportunity to be the gadfly and ask questions, including this one. Is your secularism as settled as you think it might be? Maybe not. Here are some historical examples. Bear with me. I'll give you a couple of them right now. Take secularity and enslavement. I grew up in New Orleans. I'm reading a book on the history of New Orleans right now. Lots of enslavement happened in New Orleans, and I didn't realize this, but I'm learning through the book that between British, French, and Spanish, and there were all of those influences in New Orleans, for my money, state history of Louisiana is the best state history of all of them because it's all of this gumbo that's all mixed together. So between British, French, and Spanish, by far, apparently, it was the French that treated their slaves the worst. And it was the French that was the most secular. French Revolution and all of those things, and most democratic in some ways too, but it was they that were treating the enslaved people by far the worst, and for our own first presidents. The most arguably secular and democratic, Thomas Jefferson, is on record as being most virulently racist out of all of those early presidents. And in England, with the original abolition movement in our terms, it would have been the Bible-believing conservatives that were most strongly for abolition of slaves. Kind of interesting how things can flip over time. Or other things. Prohibition, early in the 20th century. We might think today, well, if there's legislation that's on the table to close the bars a little earlier, that's probably a conservative thing. Back then, prohibition was a very progressive issue, and it was tied to women's suffrage and other things. Things flip and are not settled, they change over time. Or coming more recently from the left, queer theory. The the ascendancy of transgenderism and transgender studies has had the effect, among other things, of that those studies and positions are attacking earlier gay and lesbian studies, saying that those gay and lesbian studies were very wrong and toxic and bad. Or feminism. There are different waves of feminism where some of them say, stay-at-home mom? You absolutely cannot be a stay-at-home mom. Or there are other types of feminism that would say, you absolutely can be a stay-at-home mom. Different waves of feminism when it comes to pornography. Pornography is horrible, it's disempowering to women, and it's enabling to men. Or other waves say pornography is wonderful. It is empowering to women and refreshingly emasculating to men all different sorts of opinions there or issues from the right abortion and I myself are pro I'm pro life we can talk about that in more detail another time but I was reading a book recently The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby that said that it wasn't until the 1980s in the formation of the moral majority with Pat Robertson where there became a coalescence of consensus around abortion in the church or environmentalism and environmental protection historically Long ago, that was a Republican issue and not a Democrat issue. All of that is to say, and I imagine that I've offended just about everybody right now, or at least I hope that I have. And all that is to say, Ahab is not all that. Ahab is not all that. And if you might be in the position of saying, I am sure that I cannot be a Christian because of X, how sure can we actually be? And if the whole ethical consensus, both on the right and on the left, is to be a modern person, trust your heart, find your tribe, try not to hurt anybody else. Trust your heart, find your tribe, try not to hurt anybody else. How different is that from the ground motive of the gospel? There's a writer named Mark Richard who's riffing both on the gospel story of Jesus and also Flannery O'Connor. This is in the Reflections quote of the worship folder. The problem is that the biggest threat to your soul is you. The problem is that the biggest threat to your soul is you. And I can imagine, what would Jesus or somebody like the Apostle Paul say? Well, I just really believe that I need to trust my heart and find my tribe they would say, hey, can we have a longer conversation about that? And does that mean that Christians are always right throughout the ages on every issue? Of course not. But the gospel story offers a tree with roots. In the 1960s, one of my favorite bands from that era was called The Band, an unfortunate name in my opinion, but Bob Dylan and The Band, when all these other bands were becoming super psychedelic and experimental in every way, The Band said... This Rootsy music is actually pretty good. We like it. And with one of their early albums, on the back cover, there was a picture of the members of the band with their parents. And you know how the parents looked? They looked old. And they looked completely non-hip in every possible way. But that was the point. And in the basement tapes where Dylan and the band record all of this great music, not released until recently, for a lot of years, there is a bootleg that said the name of these recordings is A Tree With Roots. And we're also given grace and space. So let's talk more briefly now about Obadiah and Elijah. Where are they aligning? Obadiah, somewhere in between. I mentioned verses 7 and 8 already, where he has multiple lords. And Obadiah is working over the household of Ahab, verse 3, Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household, but Obadiah is sticking his neck out for Yahweh as well. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. So Obadiah is in this situation where he's both fearing God and fearing Ahab. There's all this back and forth, starting with verse 11. Now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah's here. But as soon as I've gone from you, you're going to go somewhere else I know not where. And then when Ahab can't find you, he's going to kill me. And back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. I don't think Obadiah here is being portrayed as this wickedly bad character. That would be taking it too far. However, such a contrast with Obadiah, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth with the steadiness of Elijah. When Obadiah is going back and forth, if I tell you this, then you'll go here. This will be a trouble. If I do this, then you'll do this. Kind of like a Woody Allen character or a Larry David character going back and forth. Contrast that with the steadiness of what Elijah says in verse 15. As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will show myself to him today. And don't call me Shirley. Elijah obeys in unfussy ways, the commands of God. Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab, and that's exactly what happened by the end of the story here. And I think that this 1 Kings 18 story enables us to see and glimpse the beauty of rootedness in God, the beauty and steadiness simply of being a child of God. I think of that tree with roots from Psalm 1. Obeying the loving Lord, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And so this is what the gospel of Jesus offers us. Evergreen wholeness in a fragmented world. Evergreen wholeness in a fragmented world. And this is where we'll wrap up. How might you move in your alignment? Maybe you're like Ahab. This this just isn't true. Moving maybe from Ahab to Obadiah, then moving maybe alignment from Obadiah to Elijah. Bible and behaviors coming into line. Walk in worldview, in terms of worldview. Let the Bible challenge you. Take a look at your social media feed. Take a look at what you're signaling. Does the Bible critique any of that? Don't do that for other people. Bible says, judge not lest you be judged, but do that for yourself. Behaviors, is God putting his finger on any behavior in your life where you know in your heart of hearts it's out of line, but you're thinking, God is putting pressure on me right now to bring it in. I think for many of us, Christian or not, this is a time period where emerging from pandemic, we're resetting baselines. What will yours be? And the best part of it is that the orthodoxy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, unlike these other orthodoxies, are shot through with grace. Our grace from beginning to end because of Jesus. Jesus, another troubler of Israel. And in fact, troubling Israel was the exact accusation that put Jesus on the cross. During his trials, we have found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ the king. This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And you know what? That's exactly what Jesus did. Where in the temple of his body, he was hung on a cross and then three days later, rose again, conquering sin and death and the devil, paying the penalty for our sin on the cross by his blood, granting renewal to our world, to all that receive this Jesus by faith, that life would be new. That an era of grace and redemption and healing might be upon the earth because Jesus has done it and we are able to align and follow. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, The Post Sunday Blues, a preaching postmortem, on the same podcast feed where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.